Can I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word? <clears throat> reading from Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of the Hermon, from Mount Mazar, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the, my, by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You may be seated. Last Sunday morning, somebody told my father-in-law the story of what had happened to him not too long ago. Now, this man was an, is today an accountant with a Ph.D., uh, some years ago, he and his wife had emigrated from China to Canada, and before long, through their connections in the Chinese community in Edmonton, they had been invited to church and very quickly became a part of the life of the congregation. But it was shortly after that that this man's wife was diagnosed with cancer. And along the way, both he and his wife kind of confessed faith in Jesus Christ, and they were baptized, and two or three weeks later, this man's wife died. Now, the man, too, as I said, had confessed Christ, but lacked a certain amount of confidence in his faith. And on a particular Sunday, a little less than a year ago, he was in church, and he doesn't remember what the pastor was preaching, but as people may often don't, I don't know, and he suddenly felt within himself this sense of urgency. In his own words, he said, my faith was weak, I needed to know. And so he cried out in his heart, God, if you're real, I need to know, I need you to show me. And within just a few moments, he says, he saw Jesus himself standing kind of up on the platform off to one side. And without kind of speaking out loud, they were able to communicate. And he said to Jesus in his heart, he said, he said, can I see my wife again? And Jesus said to him, no. He said, well, can I talk with her? And Jesus didn't say anything at all. Then the man in kind of desperation of soul said, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do with my life? And Jesus said, follow me and I'll show you. Now that encounter obviously transformed this man at a pivotal point in his life. Uh, since then, he has, his faith has been shored up and strengthened. He had a very specific uh, call from Christ to follow him. He knew that Jesus was real. And so his faith suddenly became anchored. Now, when I hear a story like that, a true story, I mean, there's a certain wow factor to a story like that. 
But I react to that story in two ways. On one hand, I celebrate the encounter with Jesus. I am thrilled that God showed himself to this man so clearly. On the other hand, I think, why doesn't God do that more often? I mean, if if God would give more people that kind of encounter, a lot more people would believe in him, wouldn't they? As Christians, our main task, of course, is to help people get to know God and to call people to respond to him in belief and in faith and in trust. Wouldn't our task be a whole lot easier if God just showed up to people the way he did to that man? Why is it so rare for God to do something like that? And would our own faith be strengthened if God made himself more obvious to us? Someone just this week said to me, how do I know if I'm hearing God clearly? How do I know if I'm missing what he wants me to do? And if only we could see him more clearly sometimes, hear his voice, then my doubts would be set to rest. I could trust him more easily. I could serve him more confidently, tell people about him more boldly. In the psalm that we just read, Psalm 42, the psalm writer feels within himself this longing for God. His past experiences of God seem distant, and now, today, he's not sure how to answer the question, where is your God? You may have felt like that sometimes. You remember an experience where God was so real, so present, but that was a while ago, and today, you're not sure how to answer the question, where is your God? I mean, you'd love to have an experience again of God. And so from from an outreach perspective and for our own sakes, we wish for a world where God would show himself, where he would speak without ambiguity, where he would act with fairness so that those who honor him are blessed and those who do not honor him are punished. I mean, in a world like that, all of our doubts would be removed and the kind of faith that God seems to desire would be evoked in us, wouldn't it? Well, the Bible describes a time when that world was what people experience. It's the story of the Israelites, the Old Testament book of Exodus. It's a remarkable period where God did, in fact, step out from behind the curtain for a time. Um, The people of Israel had grown from a clan of about 70 people to a nation of, of tens of thousands of people. But they had done it as an enslaved people in Egypt over some almost 400 years. But when the time was right, God stepped in in dramatic fashion and effected their deliverance through Moses. And we know the story, many of us. And in that event, and in the period immediately following that, God made himself more obvious than he had at any time before or at any time since then. In the ten plagues that devastated Egypt, God let loose such a display that not one, but two nations were utterly convinced of his reality And his power. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians knew that the Lord was God. Then he parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites passed through on dry land. God miraculously provided food and water for them in the desert. But even if the miracles themselves were not enough, God visibly manifested himself to the people of Israel. There was a pillar of cloud that turned to a pillar of fire at night. Uh, When the Israelites were all camped together, that pillar was in the center of the camp. When it was time for them to move, the pillar went on before them. And if someone had asked an Israelite, where is your God? They would just point and say, he's right there. 
God came down to Mount Sinai and fire and smoke with thunder caused the whole mountain to quake. When God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting and then later on in the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud would hover right at the door of the tent. After speaking with Moses, Moses' face would radiate light so much so that he had to veil himself. God showed himself plainly. He manifested his presence, obviously, to the people. He was right there in their midst. God also spoke clearly. His will was clear with no gray areas. God even gave instructions about hygiene and cooking. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk, he said. How to treat slaves and neighbors. Instructions as to what kind of worship practices to engage in and when to do it. He told them exactly when to break up camp and move on. He gave them something called the Urim and the Thummim, a means by which they could determine God's will if they needed to know and they didn't already know. Everything was spelled out for the Israelites. Do we often wish that God would make his will more clear? Well, to the Israelites, he did. And God actually spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend, the Bible says. And in fact, the Israelites, kind of terrified of God's glory, said to Moses, don't let him talk to us. He can talk to you and you can talk to us because if he talks directly to us, we can't handle that. We'll die. So God showed himself, God spoke clearly, God instituted a system of absolute fairness. God laid things out so clearly. Obedience and faithfulness will result in blessing. You will prosper, you will enjoy good health and long life, you'll have divine protection from enemy peoples, crops will be plentiful, you'll have prosperity and security. On the other hand, disobedience and unfaithfulness will result in curses. You'll experience famine and poverty. Your enemies will defeat you and oppress you. Your cattle will be sterile. You will be living in fear. In other words, good things will happen to good people. Bad things will happen to bad people. We sometimes hear the objective that when bad things happen to good people, that's evidence that God is not real or that God is not good. And we think that if good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, that would really cultivate faith in God. God showed himself, God spoke clearly in a world of fairness where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's the world that many people ask for. God's will clear, his presence obvious, goodness rewarded, badness zapped. Surely a world like that would inspire real faith and answer our question. It's astonishing what Israel did in that context. Even while Mount Sinai shook with the very presence of God, They built idols at the foot of the mountain and began to worship them. The Israelites continually grumbled and complained to God and about God. They flagrantly disregarded God's direct command. Did God's fair system of rewards for obedience and punishment of disobedience, did that have good results? Well, within just one generation, the people of Israel had disintegrated into a state of religious and spiritual anarchy. And the rest of the Old Testament, essentially after that, is the history of the playing out of the the punishments that God had said would come if they had done that. Did clarity of God's will lead greater obedience? No. They stayed put when God said move. They attacked when God said don't attack. They almost tripped over themselves trying to find ways to break God's commands. And these were the very people who had seen with their own eyes the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the sea, the miracle of water from the rock, the very glory of God in their midst. 
And it seems that God making himself obvious had the opposite effect of what we think might have happened. Rather than foster faith, it it provoked rebellion in people. Yeah, but that was in the desert. I mean, hardly ideal conditions. Well, good point. Okay, what if conditions were ideal? Fast forward about 500 years. The Israelites are now firmly established in their own land. During the reign of David, a godly man, Israel's territory had, ex- had expanded. God had blessed and prospered them. And when David's son Solomon comes to the throne, Israel's greatness as a nation is at its height. Other nations pay tribute to Israel. Israel is wealthy. The people are secure and they are safe. And God himself, again, manifests himself. He shows up to Solomon, promises great blessing if Solomon will only honor and seek the Lord. And Solomon says, yes, absolutely, begins his reign by by inaugurating this building project to build a magnificent temple for the Lord God of Israel. It took seven years to do it. And so for seven years, all the energy and the resources and the attention of the people of Israel are God-focused. And when the temple is dedicated, God again shows up in front of the whole nation with a dazzling display of power. His glory descends and fills the temple so much so that people can't even go inside. And as one man, the nation falls on their face and worships with with joy and wonder. They spontaneously decide, let's just continue this whole worship experience for seven more days. And with God at the center, this is the high watermark in Israel's history, politically, economically, but spiritually and religiously as well. And surely now, Israel gets it. Unbelievably, it's Solomon himself who begins to lead the people from that point on into the worship of idols of other gods. And the whole history of Israel after that point is a long decline into paganism until at last God brings his promised punishment on them and they are conquered and exiled. When God parts the sky and breaks into our world in an undeniable display of himself, of glory and power, it doesn't seem to evoke faith. Consider it from God's perspective. As we read through the Bible, we discover that what God wants primarily from people is to be loved. Obeyed, yes, but the obedience that comes out of love, a loving response to his goodness to us. Worshipped, yes, but the worship of adoration, not just humility. But God's demonstrated power to Israel did not evoke Israel's love, it evoked fear. And fear, in its turn evoked rebellion, as fear always does. When Jesus came, God entered the world again, this time with his power cloaked and obscured. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden, begins a story by Kierkegaard. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist, and no one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief 
for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. Kierkegaard says, for it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. And the king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. That's something like what God did in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God approached humanity in a manner that did not instill fear. I mean, Jesus showed divine power with his miracles, but without the thunder and the fire of God's Old Testament appearances. In Jesus Christ, God spoke, but with a human voice, not one that caused people to fall prostrate on the ground. And yet then, many people didn't believe him. Where's the power, they said. Show us a miracle. And Jesus often took a step back when there came an undue emphasis on his miracles. He knew from Israel's history that miracles did not produce the love and faithfulness that God desired. In any way, his miracles did not convince most people. Some attributed them to Satan's power. Others just wanted to see miracles. They wanted to see Jesus perform. So apparently, for God to remove all doubt and reveal himself with no barriers doesn't remove doubt, doesn't cultivate the love and faith God seems to desire of us. And yet, if he does cloak himself, then people complain that God is distant or absent, not enough evidence, not enough proof. And this week, as I was reading and kind of thinking about this in preparation for this morning, there were kind of three things that factored into this equation for me in terms of my own faith. The first is that by obscuring himself, God automatically creates the need for faith on my part. And we're going to talk more about this next Sunday, but the Bible reveals that somehow our faith means a great deal to God. To trust God when doubt is possible to choose obedience when the outcome is not clear, these things God values deeply from us. The classic example of this, of course, is the story of Job in the Old Testament, and he will be the subject of next week's message. But also Hebrews chapter 11 is a litany of people who by faith trusted God and obeyed for what they did not yet see or understand. And God does not dump himself on us. He doesn't dump his kingdom on us. He calls us to seek. God doesn't mow down our doubts by making himself obvious. I mean, we see from Scripture that that doesn't work anyway. But he woos us. He makes overtures to us. It's like C.S. Lewis kind of pictures it as, as we hear the notes of a song that we can't quite hear distinctly. We, we smell flower, but we can't see it clearly yet. God's obscurity demands faith on my part. The second observation, and one that I've already said a hundred times this morning, that what I assume will produce or cultivate faith probably will not. The things that I think I require from God in order to shore me up in faith, God says, you don't need that. It won't work. 
And then finally, if, if God had given me a moment of clarity, if God gave me a moment of clarity right now, if Jesus showed up on the platform today, would that help me much? I don't think so. And I don't think so because I have had moments of clarity. There have been a few, precious few, but a few nonetheless. There have been a few moments where I have known God. His direction was clear. His presence almost palpable. And I knew that God was real and that he was good. But later on, I find myself doubting again. In Psalm 42, which we read today, David remembers these great experiences of worship in the temple. But now he's downcast and he's wondering where God is. And if God blazed into my life or stood on the stage, as he did for this man I talked about earlier, that would be great, and that would carry me for a season. But I would inevitably need another vision or another encounter somewhere down the road. And I'm afraid that my life of faith would become nothing more than a life of addiction, always looking for the next hit of God to carry me. And God doesn't want that for me. He doesn't want that for you. He didn't want that for Israel. Philip Yancey makes this insightful, I think, observation. The very clarity of God's will had a stunting effect on Israel's faith. Why pursue God when he had already revealed himself so clearly? Why step out in faith when God had already guaranteed the results? Why wrestle with the dilemma of conflicting choices when God had already resolved the dilemma? In short, why should the Israelites act like adults when they could act like children. And act like children, they did. Grumbling against their leaders, cheating on the strict rules governing manna, whining about every food or water shortage. As I studied the story of the Israelites, I had second thoughts about crystal clear guidance. It may serve some purpose, for example, to get a mob of just freed slaves across a hostile desert, but it does not encourage spiritual growth. God wants to cultivate maturity, and maturity requires trust and obedience and faith. To the man whose story I told earlier, God graciously stepped out from behind the curtain and revealed himself. But as you know, God usually does not do that. And that reality means that faith will struggle. It may mean that some will reject or ignore God entirely. This morning, I read an email from somebody. I asked him, I said, what are your hurdles in coming to faith? And he emailed back and said, there's just not enough evidence for me. And I always find that I have to leave reason and step into faith, and I'm not willing to go there. And God's decision to obscure himself to a certain degree means that there will be people who choose to reject and ignore God. There's three implications of all of this, and I want to talk for the last few moments to us as Christians individually, and to some of you who may be seeking or exploring, and then finally to us as a whole church together. For us as individual Christians, the fact that God is often somewhat obscured does not mean a deficit on your part. Often we think that if we only tried harder, God would seem closer. If only we were better Christians, then I would hear him better. I would sense his presence more. God is not veiled because he's waiting for us to measure up. God is veiled at least partially because he's wanting to draw us into a depth of faith 
that we cannot know if he showed up and made himself obvious. And we'll hear in more detail next week from the story of Job. But God is actually encouraging us into faith by his very silence and hiddenness. It's like the parent who says to her crying child on his first day of school, this is okay for you. You need to do this by yourself. You will be fine. God does that to us in a sense. You need to do this by yourself and you will be fine. So be encouraged. The faith that is deepened by seeking is of greater substance than the so-called faith that is weak because it never had to exercise its muscle, never had to stand on its own. So if you are distressed by the hiddenness of God, be encouraged, you're normal. Secondly, for some of you who may be seeking this morning or exploring the reality of God through Jesus Christ, As with this gentleman I got an email from this morning, some maybe are waiting for all the answers before you step into it. Maybe you're waiting to have all of your questions dealt with satisfactorily. And I want to warn you this morning that you will never get all the answers that you seek. God does not cross all the T's and dot all the I's. Spiritual life is like natural life. Nobody's born into adulthood, and so it is spiritually. We are born into an infant faith that grows into maturity, and that maturing happens through a life of seeking and of struggling, of learning trust and of wrestling with God, and of sometimes asking the questions, God, where are you? And to not get an answer. And I want to invite you, even this morning, if you have reached kind of a critical mass of understanding I want to invite you to trust God for what you don't yet know. Step over the line even today. If you've been at Thornhill for any length of time, then you know that it is through Jesus Christ that one is born into spiritual life and begins to draw near to God. And if you've never taken that step of engaging with Christ, then do it today. Do it even this morning. And if you do, tell somebody. Tell me. We want to, we want to help you explore it further. And then third and finally, the implications for us as a whole church. We exist, Thornhill Baptist Church, so we say, not only to know Christ, but also to make him known. And if people are going to know the reality of God, it will not be because God steps onto the stage. It will not be because God blasts into their life with fire and smoke and thunder. It will be because we're making him known to them. If people complain that there's not enough evidence to warrant belief and trust and faith in God, it will be because we ourselves have not been that evidence. And I remain convinced that the greatest and most urgent priority for us right now is to actively make Christ known to people. And your life group needs to be thinking about that. The choir needs to be thinking about that. The youth group and the Sunday school need to be thinking about that. We all need to be thinking about that. Our greatest, most urgent priority is to make God known to people. Does God want to reveal himself to people? Absolutely. How does he want to do it? Through you and through me. When God reveals himself nine times out of ten, 99 times out of 100, he'll do it through Christians. And I'm gratified in my own heart to see that we are once again as a church growing in our understanding of that and taking it on kind of with a renewed, again, sense of passion 
as our great mission. I talked with somebody this week who literally kind of trembled and shook as she talked about the urgency of reaching out for people in the name of Christ. I saw this week on Tuesday the commitment of people who gladly give their Tuesday evening every week solely in order to help people find Jesus. I meet with people regularly who are intentionally trying to cultivate in their own hearts a greater awareness of and compassion for the spiritual need around us. And as we as a church increasingly make that an urgent priority, as we reallocate more of our time and our resources to this ministry of outreach, what that means is that fewer and fewer people will have to ask, where is your God? I don't see him. Instead, they will look at you and at me and at us as a church and say, I see the reality of God. We're often disappointed because we wish that God were more visible or obvious to us. And if only he would show up, my faith would be strengthened. And I hope this morning that you have been encouraged to know that that may not necessarily be true. And that God's very silence and hiddenness and obscurity is doing a better work in us. And it doesn't mean that you are unspiritual. It doesn't mean that you have walked away from God. Remember that old cliche, if God seems, seems distant, guess who moved? That is not always true. If God seems distant, good. It's normal. God is doing something in you. Don't be too distressed by the hiddenness of God. But also then, remember that if we want people to know God, God's not just going to blitz into their life, but he's going to show himself to them through us. Through our acts of Christ-likeness, kindness, love, integrity, mercy, sharing of faith, being good to the poor, and so on. God does want to reveal himself, not only to you, but through you and through us. So let's remember that. Come back next week, Sunday, here, and we're going to talk a little bit more about disappointment with God. We're going to look at the story of Job and ask the question, is God unfair? When I give myself to the Lord... Why did this happen? Where is God in the midst of this storm, this anxiety and, and anguish in my life? So come back and hear part two. This morning's message does not stand by itself. It's part one. Come back next week. I'm going to close in prayer. And in a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. One thing that the scripture tells us is that God didn't make himself necessarily obvious in Christ. People could interact with Christ and still not get it. But God's character was revealed more perfectly in Christ than at any other time. And Jesus said, you know, if you see me, you see the Father. And we're going to celebrate the fact that God has made himself known in a wonderful and personal way to us through Jesus Christ. So that's what we'll remember in just a few moments. Let's pray. Lord, the scripture verse comes to mind and I, just in this moment, and I didn't include it this morning, but we look forward to a time when, as Paul says, our faith shall be sight. And on this side of heaven, there's a certain amount of wrestling, there's a certain amount of not knowing. As you continue to shore up our trust and our faith and draw us nearer and nearer to yourself, but we know that the day is coming when our faith will be sight, and you will be even more clear and obvious than you were to Israel in their day. And we look forward to that, and we ask that you would help us in the meantime 
to trust for what we don't know and to obey according to what we do know and to live faithfully. Part of that means rolling up our sleeves and being faithful. I think most of that means relying on you and your faithfulness and grace in our lives to keep us walking this life of faith that you call us to. When we're weak, make us strong. When we don't know the answers, don't give us the answers, but help us to be comfortable with trust. And as we remember Christ specifically this morning, I pray that that too would be a meaningful and worshipful encounter with us where we reaffirm our own faith and commitment and celebrate your commitment to us. Continue to meet with us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is a hymn both of response and of preparation, response to what we've heard and preparation for what we are about to celebrate. 